Shelton, the critical thinker at large. As cringeworthy as that title might be to some of you, I love it and I embrace it and I am a critical thinker and that is what I am trying to do. Um, and I am joined this week by my good friend, Cyprian Ivanov. Hey, Cyprian, welcome back to the show. Hello, and my name is Kiprian Elio Ivanov, or that's what they want you to think. <laughs> exactly. There we go. There we go. So, uh, hey, everybody, we're going to have a little informal discussion this week uh, between Cyprian and I about critical thinking, about conspiracy theories, and about where these two things sort of come together or fly apart. Uh, because, uh, of course, it, it seems a bit of a... Um, what's the word? Well, it just seems to, uh, to, to be a contradiction that you have people claiming to be deep, uh, analytical, very serious critical thinkers who then forward and make truth claims like the Queen of England is a blood-drinking, shape-shifting lizard from another dimension. And that is a claim that a man named David Icke has made in very, very serious terms uh, repeatedly uh, as a co so-called critical thinker. Uh, and this is, you know, the David Icke and the Alex Jones types are the people that I rail against all the time is kind of what for me, I, was, I used to describe as kind of the low-hanging fruit of the skeptic, atheist, you know, sort of uh, con uh, critical thinking world was uh, the flat earthers and the 9-11 truthers and, you know, these really wild, deep conspiracy theory folks, right? And the way that they will come together on the most crazy ideas, these, these things that really don't hold any water, they don't make any sense, like the fact that the earth has to be flat, because uh, Satan wants to somehow, you know, lure us all into this conspiracy of, of stupidity that, that the world is flat and we're all being told it's a globe because we're just being deceived by, you know, the great deceiver. And that's, that's the flat earth theory in a nutshell, basically. If you get down to the bottom of it, that's what it comes down to. And there are very serious people who take this very seriously, and they think of themselves as very serious critical thinkers. And so Cyprian suggested we talk about this because how can this be? How, how is it that you have people who are applying these tools and using this skill set that we call critical thinking and coming up with the most asinine, bass-ackwards, nonsensical ideas that, that you could possibly imagine. I mean, these are really, really bad, dumb, stupid ideas. So how do they get reinforced with critical thinking? And that's that's what we thought we'd talk about this week. And I'm I'm game. So Cyprian, where's where are you coming from on this? Well, uh I've noticed uh with a number of uh people uh spouting very crazy things that they claim to be critical thinkers. For example, the guy who had a Scientology mission in uh, Israel said, well, I'm a critical thinker, and yet he was running a Scientology mission. Uh, then you have people who end up claiming that uh, the COVID virus is really an exosome, 
and they claim to be critical thinkers. And I see people claiming that, well, no law requires you to have a driver's license, and they claim to be critical thinkers. There's a lot of bad reasoning that gets uh, put forth by people who claim to be critical thinkers. What's going on? Yeah. And the degree to which they claim to be a critical thinker really seems to be increasing their confidence, not reducing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what exactly are the steps that they consider critical thinking? Well, those are good questions, and um, and we not, might not necessarily come up with all the right answers today, but uh, we will certainly talk about this. I think that, first off, I would like to cite a study that was done fairly recently. In fact, this year it was published uh, from France, of all places, and um, this is a research article that is entitled, Maybe a Free Thinker But Not a Critical One. High conspiracy belief is associated with low critical thinking ability. And this study is interesting because it came up right away when I started Googling for this. And you will find no shortage of papers and books even written about the subject of conspiracy theorists. This has been researched uh, by social scientists, by psychologists for years. There have been a very... There's a, there's a wealth of scholarly literature on the subject of conspiracy theorists. What there hasn't been, and what this paper claims to be, or this study claims to be, is the first study actually testing the relationship between critical thinking skills, let's sit these people down and let's test them on their critical thinking, and let's ask them at the same time, hey, where are your views on conspiracies? What are you thinking on conspiracy theories, right? And basically, the, the mechanisms of the studies, and there were two studies, two sets of studies that were done, and the mechanisms are interesting, and they're all laid out here, and we're not going to go over all that. We're just going to, you know, run with the fact that they did it right. And I, I, from looking it over, it appears that they did. Um, what they found is that there are two ideas in the world of conspiracy, there's the idea that there are good critical thinkers who are applying critical thinking skills to be conspiracy theorists. And then there's the idea that they are just saying that they are good critical thinkers because they're claiming that they're critical thinkers and they have good critical thinking skills. But when put to the test, yeah, maybe that's not actually the case. And it turns out that that's actually more reality, that second bit, that they claim to be good critical thinkers, but when you actually sit them down and test them, it doesn't really work out that way. Now, this was only done in France with French students in a French university, in a couple different French universities. So that's the, that's the data set we've actually got to work with. This doesn't necessarily speak to the critical thinking skills of Joe Blow in Alabama or New York or Montana or wherever Joe Blow is outside of France, but it's a start. It's something to look at rather than nothing. So that's, um, that is the beginning of our, of our research on this is here's a modern study that breaks it all down and talks about the, um, the idea that this rational, what's called the rational conspiracist hypothesis that's what, that's what they call it in academia. Um, this idea is commonly attributed to conspiracy believers, but it does not seem to be in line with reality.
Indeed, when it comes to objective rather than subjective critical thinking, a variety of indirect evidence suggests that conspiracy believers are less likely to rely on a rational mindset. And interestingly, a point that's made in this paper and in another place that I looked this up is that one of the most important differences or key points about people who are in a conspiracy theory mindset versus people who are not in terms of critical thinking is that people who are in a conspiracy mindset tend to not put a lot of value or importance on the ability to think critically and the ability to actually reason things through in a rational manner. They will tend to have an attitude that that's actually not important, that going with your gut is the right way to think, that going with how it feels is the tendency that they have. Or rather that they think uh, specifically articulating the assumptions and steps is not needed because they're already doing that instinctually. Yes. But they're not. That's right. And see, when you test them objectively, you find out they're not actually engaging in good critical thinking, but they think they are. And they call what they're doing critical thinking, even though it's not that. It's actually full of logical fallacies and cognitive biases and problems and, and you know, rationality, cognitive problems, uh, things we poke holes in, right? So... Um, so it's interesting because you, you can't just listen to what somebody says and take it at face value when they say, well, I'm a critical thinker. You have to, you gotta have to dig in a little bit and go, well, really, are you? Well, let's take a look at how much of a critical thinker you are, you know, and you can test for this. There are standardized tests. There's, there's open-ended tests, by the way. These are not just multiple choice you know, biased fill-in-the-blank kind of things. These are, here's here's an argument. Give me your counter-argument. Let's lay it all out. You know, they write it all out in paragraph form. So it's it really does engage with the people that they were studying as to, you know, whether they had critical thinking skills or not. Could they, could they form an argument? Could they recognize an argument? Could they make a good counter-argument? These kind of things are the are the the basic fundamentals of, of good critical thinking. So you can test for them. It's not just this you know all opinion as to whether somebody is a good critical thinker or not. And um, I'd like to point out that there has been some study of uh, some of the predictors of flawed critical thinking. Mm-hmm. So Kenneth Drinkwater, who studies uh, paranormal beliefs, uh, cooperated with a few other academics who write predictors and associates of problem reaction solution, statistical bias, emotional-based reasoning, and belief in the paranormal. Mm. Uh, and the main area of study was the believers in David Icke's problem reaction solution theory. Mm-hmm. So uh, they put a bunch of... Should, uh, we, should we clarify that for everybody, what that is? Um, sure. I mean, would it be... Do you think it might help? You know of... David Icke better than I do. <laughs> yeah. Is it Icke or Ike? I've, I've never pronounced I've the I've seen e. both. I've seen both. Okay, because he's got an E at the end of his name, but I've always called him David Icke. But he... I, I did until I ran into people who pronounced Ike, so. oh, okay, yeah, fair enough. I'm not really sure. I've never, I've never heard him say his own name out loud. 
but um, he is a British uh, guy, he used to be a sports commentator, and he was quite famous, and he um, then started spouting some pretty weird conspiracy stuff and kind of got removed from the sports world. Kind of well, he was in the Green it. Party before he uh, he was in the Green Party, and then oh. got removed from the Green Party because of his. Uh, oh, okay, got it. Anyway, and then he's been spouting stuff, and he writes books and this kind of stuff. When I was a Sea Org member, I first ran across David Ike, and so a little bit of history uh, for me here is that he came up as part of why you should join the Sea Org. If I'm recruiting you to join the Sea Org, and I'm a Sea Org member, I was using David Icke as part of my recruitment briefing, part of my process in doing that. And the problem reaction solution thing that you refer to was specifically what I was using. David Icke proposed that the way the world works is that is that a, the media will report on some kind of big problem, some kind of big issue, you know, 9-11, security threats, for example, was the classic one he used. And how the world's a very dangerous place, and there's all these terrorists, and this big problem, and we have to have a war on terror. And so there's the problem. And so the reaction to this problem is, oh, my God, we, you know, the public freak out. Everybody goes crazy. Ah, you know, they get scared. They get freaked out. There's terrorists. They, you know, their job could blow up tomorrow. Uh, their house could blow up tomorrow. Their grocery store could blow up tomorrow. You never know where the terrorists are. They could be hiding in a bush. And so everybody freaks out. And so that's the reaction to the problem. And so then the conspiracy forces come rolling in with the solution to that problem. See, the idea here is that the problem is a created artificial problem. It doesn't really exist, or it doesn't really exist at the magnitude that it's presented by the media, the fear-mongering media who are trying to scare you all the time, which they are kind of trying to do. So David Icke's kind of in the line <laughs> a little bit there, but... Um, it's not quite as nefarious as he makes it out to be. So the idea is that the is that you are scared to death. You are presented with this big problem. You react by, oh, my God, the government must protect us. And so the solution that comes rolling in is, let's say, the security state, the surveillance state, where in Britain and the UK, you have cameras on every street corner. You can be recorded leaving your home and going to the grocery store. I think the number is you will be recorded by no less than 60 different cameras making the average trip to the average grocery store. So, Which was happening well before 9-11, by the way, so... Fascinating, but of course David Icke won't mention that part. It'll just be well. The surveillance state was what they wanted, and so they knew they couldn't just make a surveillance state. They couldn't just start putting cameras up everywhere and surveilling everybody. People would object to that. So instead, they make everybody demand that solution that they want by creating a problem that is so horrible and so awful that everybody will go crazy and demand that solution to that problem. And so you have this problem, reaction, solution. And 
I learned through critical thinking <laughs> after started sort of realizing that David Icke didn't really know what he was talking about. I sort of logically broke that whole problems reaction solution thing down and realized it was just a bunch of nonsense. But I, when I first heard it and when other people in Scientology that I talked to about it first heard it, they thought it was brilliant. They thought it was an amazingly insightful piece of social commentary and media commentary and and, uh, you know, an example of how government overreach occurs. And it's just not that at all. It's it, You can actually logically break that and the whole problem reaction solution thing. It's just a bunch of nonsense. So uh, that is what we're talking about there. I just thought I should clarify. Well, um, and in the study, uh, Drinkwater et al. Uh, found that there was no correlation between belief in David Icke's problem reaction solution theory and a measure of emotion-based reasoning. But there was a correlation with a poor understanding of causation. Mm-hmm. That so makes sense. a number of reasoning biases end up being much a much better predictor of of support for David Icke's conspiracy theory than just emotion. Mm-hmm. And while the people might be very angry, it's the bad reasoning precedes the anger, not the reverse. Interesting. Or at least not at a rate different from the general population's tendency to latch onto a theory uh, to support their anger. That's very interesting. I, I I think you would find um, a lot of counterplay there, I think, between the anger and the acceptance of information. I have, you know, I've sort of talked about emotion, emotional needs. People believe things because they have emotional needs. And, we, and, and you just mentioned, you know, emotion-based reasoning as a negative, as like a pejorative, you know, something that's bad. But the fact is that I don't know that it's possible for a human being to engage in anything but emotion-based reasoning, you know, in all but the most fundamental of calculations. I think that, you know, when you break out a calculator and are doing two, two, you know, two plus two equals four, I doubt there's much emotion there. But when it comes to beliefs, when it comes to how we view the world, attitudes about, you know, major news events or uh, social, uh, you know, uh, movements or causes or something— I, I don't think you can divorce the 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 analytical process of thinking with the emotion, the emotional state of the person doing the thinking. I think these two things are are intimately connected together and very, very much a part of how we come to our conclusions. I don't know. I mean, I just thought, thought I'd throw that out there. I mean, Do you think? Um, I mean. Emotion select values, but the calculating part of the brain calculates probabilities and outcomes and yeah. determines whether it's good or bad based on those values. Well, that's so exactly right. There's always going to be an interplay. Well, that, that's exactly right, though, because I think one of our biggest bones of contention and the reason we're having this discussion today is because you can see people do that calculation of probability— but then their emotional state or their or their preconceived biases, which are usually connected to one another, because these are these pre these preconceived biases tend to feed 
emotions of, you know, security, stability, you know, calm. This is the way the world's supposed to be. This is what this is. This is how I'm comfortable viewing the world. So now my calculations of probability of whether this event did or didn't happen or whether I'm going to accept this fact is true or not is suddenly being modified by how much the person wants it to be true. Which might happen to an extent, uh, but uh, it's especially visible in a number of totalist movements. Mm-hmm. And when you get into uh, the concept of sacred science from Lifton's book, mm-hmm. uh, it really clicks. I see that in a lot of conspiracy theories where they substitute uh, moral claims and factual claims. For example, uh, the claim, you shouldn't need a driver's license, often gets flipped as being a factual basis as opposed to a moral argument. That's right. But then you also get with you also get factual arguments in the middle of moral arguments. That's right. And this is as this is uh, as without establishing the relevance. Well, no, you're you're absolutely right, and this is exactly what I'm talking about because that is what I'm talking. The moral arguments are coming from a place where the person is feeling this is how the world should be. This is how I want it to be. This is how I've been taught. It's supposed to be, you know, these are all, these are all phrases that come out of our moral reasoning, right? The shoulds and shouldn'ts, the ought tos and the ought not to be's. This is, you know, of behavior, of circumstance. This is, this is how we look at things through a moral lens. And we make all kinds of calculations based on how we think it should be rather than how it actually is. You know, and we can be and and we can tend to bias our perception of a thing, why it is, what it is, what it's doing, what it's there for, by our moral preconceptions. You know, and this is and I had a whole argument with a guy just yesterday uh, who was a theist. He's a very, very strong believer. And, and I'd like to point out that I'm a pretty conservative Christian myself, so uh, our dialogue is productive, even though we don't always agree. Well, correct. And in this particular case, this man was arguing against naturalism. And he was saying that the whole concept, well, his assertion was that because naturalism only acknowledges the truth or validity of, of evidence-based, you know, f- things you can see, touch, feel, experience, perceive, right? Because that's the approach of naturalism, and it tends to reject supernatural explanations for things. Well, he just couldn't morally grapple with that. It, he disagreed with the concept of it so hard because to him— if all if the if if physical things are the only thing that exists and there is no god and there is no sort of supernatural existence then there's no reason for anybody to be moral or have any purpose or meaning in life and he found this so counter to his idea of how reality should be that he just couldn't even entertain the concept that natural that a naturalistic worldview could have any validity he just couldn't uh, and i've seen there. the flip side for example a lot of uh 
uh, communists uh, and other people in the 1920s argued that since uh, the physical world was all that existed, therefore a certain kind of utilitarian morality uh, also came with it, which is they're separate concepts. One does not argue for the other. Correct. But people tied the two together. Exactly. And that's and that was where his morality was standing in the way of him being able to even understand the arguments I was trying to make. Because I'm trying to say, well, look, just because things are viewed through a materialistic lens doesn't mean immediately and at once that life has no purpose or no meaning, that morality is, is a joke or is just some social construct. And he couldn't separate the different premises. No, he could not. He could not think his way through the idea that one didn't cause the other. To him, a godless society was instantly evil and would destroy itself at once, and there was no other way around it, and that's just how it was. And so, therefore, it could I mean, in be... long-term extrapolation, you can imagine a way it could happen. Yeah, he could But that's not the same thing as all the steps being logically supported. Yeah, well, my point, right? He, he, was, he was conjoining these two things that didn't really have to connect— but in his mind, they did because of his morality, not because of his ability to um, see or not see facts. I mean, he just couldn't even perceive the facts or perceive the counter argument I was making. He just couldn't even go there because yeah. it could not. It just simply could not be that the world was only materialistic. It just can't be that way because it makes me too uncomfortable. That was basically where he was coming from. And I couldn't um, get through that. I just could not get through that. Returning to the conspiracy elements. Yeah. Uh, he, one thing I noticed is that that uh, uh, substitute uh, that uh, flipping between moral and factual arguments uh, also created a degree of paranoia. So you ended up with people who might disagree with a factual claim getting interpreted as disagreeing with a moral claim. Right, could you give and, an example of that? That sounds a little in the clouds. What do you, well, like, like, what do you mean? For example, the claim that uh, in economics, there's a longstanding uh, argument that planned economies actually leave uh, the poor worse off. Okay. And that's a factual argument. Whereas the claim that planned economies make everyone equal is another factual argument. You could make factual arguments around those ideas. You could also make moral arguments around them, too. I guess it depends on how yes. you approach it, right? Right. So uh, when people criticize a certain government program, oftentimes they're on economic theory grounds accused of hating the people it's supposed to benefit rather than disagreeing with the long-term economic consequences right right so that's, that's a, a that's, very and common that's, phenomenon but it was especially visible among communists in the west where uh claims about soviet economic mismanagement were treated as uh an effort to hurt workers rather than as a simple factual disagreement. Right, right. So here's a system which is not paying its workers as much as it should be or could be for them to be able to, let's say, make a living wage. 
you calculate the living wage, you look at the system, it's not paying that, and you say that, you go, look, the system isn't doing this. And it purports to be able to do this, but it doesn't do this. It does. It's not providing a working living wage for these people. And somebody's response to you is, "Oh, you just don't like workers. You just think that you just you you just don't you just don't like communists, or you just want them all to fail, or some other sort of ad hominem attack on the person, rather than the facts of their claim." And I, and I think a lot of the people throwing those accusations genuinely believe that. Oh, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. But that's what I mean when I say, or I'm always going on about how people are not naturally good critical thinkers. Organically, naturally, that's the kind of thing we just do. We just attack the person who's giving the fact, kill the messenger, right? Ignore the message. It's That's what we do as human beings. That's how we tend to act, which is why I, I have to emphasize over and over and over again that, that critical thinking is a discipline. It's, a, it's, a, it's not just a set of skills. It's the discipline of, of learning how to use those skills in a, in a disciplined way so you don't react with that kind of ad hominem, ah, you just... You know, you just blow the person off. You just reject the person and, you know, basically, like I said, kill the messenger, ignore the message. It, it's not, you know, that, that's just, that's bad critical thinking, <laughs> but it's also perfectly normal human behavior, you know? Um, so you ended up with a number of reasoning problems yeah. uh, that way. Yeah. A and sometimes fear can contribute to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Marcus Wolf, uh, back during World War II, uh, his parents were uh, communists, and they fled to the Soviet Union. And uh, he was trained with a number of other German kids to be the future leaders of East Germany. And part of that was learning to argue with non-communists. Except when they were in class, they couldn't really do it how to forcefully because, hey, it's still the Soviet Union. And if you seem to be making too, um, uh, an apparently passionate argument, that would be a huge, uh, pun intended, red flag. <laughs> right. That's right. Exactly. So it might be a little hard to teach good critical thinking in an, uh, in an oppressive authoritarian environment. Because how can you tell the difference between genuine disagreement and subversion? That's right. That's right. And that's actually in line with it, bringing it back to the conspiracy world. This goes back to uh, who was it? Is it? Who was the guy who said this? The thing about how, um, you know, you're not going to change a, a man's mind if he's being paid to think the way he's being, you know, thinking or if, you know, if if it's in a person's interest, if it's in a person's best interest to believe a thing or to push a thing, then you're going to have a very hard time getting that person to not, you know, to change their mind. But overestimating that can also be a problem. Uh, well, no, for sure. I'm just saying that that's, you know, whether it's an authoritarian government whose vested interest is, you know, you guys are not going to criticize us. So we'll teach you critical thinking as long as you don't criticize us in the process. Right. So are you really teaching it to 
the conspiracy theorist who has the either emotional or, it, well, let's just say that, that it's almost always emotional-based reasons for, you know, for having to believe in this conspiracy theory. It benefits the theorist, in other words, in some fashion. It helps them. They think it helps them. They perceive that it helps them or it benefits them in a significant way for them to believe this. And until you, you know, we always talk about engaging with these people, but if you don't find out what that benefit or those benefits are to the person, why they believe this, but not just why they believe it, but what they get out of it, you'll never take it apart because that's part of it. You know, we don't you, just believe things. We believe things for a reason. You've got the root forces and then the conspiracy theory is a path to what the perceived goal is. Yeah, exactly. You know, and there's a lot of, uh, like, for example, there's a lot of social currency in, in conspiracy thinking. Especially now on social media, right? Because conspiracy theorists come together and they form these communities. And before social media, it was newsletters. It was it was hand-printed leaflets. It was little booklets I mean, that there, they would there mail. There used to be a whole lot of independent tax, tax protester movement. Yes. And it's one thing to dislike taxes because there was a whole lot of mess in the tax code. Yep. It's quite another to dislike the idea of taxation. And some people have proposed alternate means of funding the government. But what the 1980s tax protester movement was actually arguing that taxes were not mandatory. That's right. Which the IRS uh, emphatically disagrees with. Right. <laughs> and uh, a couple of those people ended up in prison. Yeah. Uh, but it's generally considered one of the classic cases of people's bad reasoning being applied to law and dragging a lot of people with them who don't understand uh, how badly the legal concepts were mangled. That's right. And then some people treated the police response as totalitarian and then tried to act in their version of self-defense. And others just seemed to be uh, pervasively embittered because they thought the government was acting corrupt when it wasn't. That's right. And, and this is actually a prime example of what we were talking about earlier with the moral arguments being conflated with the factual arguments, because you, you come, these people, the, the sovereign citizens we're talking about here, almost uniformly are coming at this from, one, almost, uh, almost every case I've ever looked at of sovereign citizens had a, had a situation where the, the sovereign citizen, the person who was forwarding these ideas, was in very dire economic straits. They were broke. Uh, they didn't have the money for a driver's license or to pay the traffic ticket or get the car registered or, or, or whatever it was that they were protesting against. And so because they had this very real problem in the real world, they adopted a moral position that the government shouldn't be taking their money because look at their circumstances, look at their situation. And from a moral point of view, Sometimes they had a point. They were destitute. They were in a really bad place. And how do you get a job when you're in a bad place and you got to drive to the job, but you can't drive to the job because you can't get the car registered and then you get a ticket and then it's a problem. And it's just this, 
you know, infinite loop of awful that these people get caught up in because of their economic situation. Then they adopt, like I said, this moral position that the government shouldn't be putting them in that position. And then they're open to this whole raft of propaganda and nonsense that the government really isn't entitled to all of your stuff. And they, and they, they buy into this whole nonsense that it's illegal for the government to tax you. And that tends to be the sequence that I've at least seen multiple times with the sovereign citizen people, you know, the people who fall into that. I don't know. What's, what's been your observation with that? Because that's how I see it. I think there's certainly some well-to-do, or at least not desperately uh, in dire straits people. Mm -hmm. However, yes, a lot of these people are poor. A lot of these people are desperate. Mm -hmm. But there's an important subset uh, that aren't. And that's not just the scammers. Okay. And I think a lot of this has to do with people who are bad at reasoning and can get into a bit of an ideological uh, messiah complex. Uh, and law is... Messiah uh, complex? Please, please explain. A messiah complex. Um, that fighting against the totalitarian corrupt government uh, is a source of validation. Oh and yeah. Well, that now, now you're now you're talking about the social currency I was referring to. Um, even if nobody else believes it, I know it's corrupt because I looked at this uh, one snippet of le of uh, uh, the federal code. And I didn't see anything that made it illegal. But I didn't look through the hundreds of legal cases and pre-existing legal doctrine. So uh, I'm very determined, but I don't actually know the full legal system. No, they don't have to. And, and more importantly, they're probably not even intellectually capable of dealing with... I don't think they are, but some know. of them definitely try. Well, and good on them for making the effort. But the point is that in terms of social currency, that poor me, poor me, I'm victimized and this is what I think and the government's attacking me and it's all authoritarian. They will find other people online through social media that they can connect with to share and commiserate and trade information and then that's how it starts that's how they get into these conspiracy communities and you create an echo chamber and it becomes yeah. a perpetuating cycle that's right because neither neither none of the people in the group actually understand the law they're all in some kind of emotional state connected with this whether they're well to do or not i can't you know fine maybe there are some well-to-do people in this. I've never seen them, but I, I will take your word for it that they exist. And so fine, but there's still going to be some kind of moralistic, emotion-based reasoning as to driving them, pushing them into that world. You know, it's like they get corralled into it in a way, you know, and the social media algorithms don't help because they all by themselves push people into this. And while so. that is most visible with specific conspiracy theorists, yeah, because there's the absence of other plausible reasoning, it's present in a lot of social movements. Yeah, Any absolutely. social movement is going to be a source of 
ego reward mm-hmm. of a sense of community, a sense of uh, my uh, my petty frustrations are encountered by other people, and we're going to set things right. If I were king for a day, yep. it's common in almost all social movements. Yep. But it is most uniquely visible uh, when it drags along a group with no coherent logical system. Well, see, and that's the thing, because it's because to them, they do have a logical consistency. There is an inherent internally consistent logic. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to form a social group, right? Because so so somehow they are coming together and meeting of the minds is occurring on pieces of information or quote-unquote facts, which are complete nonsense. But the miracle of the human mind is it doesn't have to be true for us to believe it. And humans necessarily (laughs) connect the dots because information gathering and processing is difficult. Well, it is. we have to act on insufficient information. And very often uh, we try to guess what's going to happen see what happened, and then try to find an explanation for the divergence. Well, exactly. And in fact, what you just described and what we can, what we should probably talk about for a second here is how we discern truth. How do we decide what is and isn't true? Generally speaking, it cannot be overstated enough or overemphasized enough that a great deal of our discerning of facts has to do with whether other people agree with us or not. It is the rare person who stands up in the middle of a crowd. We've, I mean, this is, this is well-researched social science, right? It is, it is, it is about two, two to three. It's two thirds to one third of people who will go along with blatantly obviously wrong information just to go along with the crowd two out of three will do that i think you might want to explain the specifics of the ash conformity experiment yeah what we're talking about here is a is a is a, a social experiment that's been repeated hundreds of times around the world and it has to do with conforming conformity right you stick a bunch of people in a room random number of people five ten whatever and um you and a couple of them or sorry, um, you know, the majority of people in the room are in on the gag, are in on the test. And they are, uh, and the person who's being tested doesn't know that he's being tested and he's in the room with these people thinking they're all there on the same terms he or she is. And they are shown factual information and asked about it and everybody in the room gives wrong answers. And so the test is, what is this guy or girl in the room who isn't in on it, what do they do? And most of the time, they go along with the group. And sanity checking and survival in a group environment is going to argue for doing what everybody else does. Exactly. We're built to do that. It takes special confidence to believe that you are right and everybody else is wrong. And usually that instinct is a good one, but sometimes it's not. Exactly. And when you self-select into a crazy community, 
There you go. Then, then the crazy is what is being mutually reinforced by everybody. The wrong information, the, the unfactual information. Well, everybody agrees on it. So to the person who enters into this community, well, this looks just like this other group over here. You know, and these guys over here are talking about how great vaccines are, and they all agree that that's what's true. But these guys over here are all talking about how vaccines are the tool of Satan, and you better not be getting vaccinated. And, and their method of confirming that and talking about that and reassuring each other about it looks and feels exactly the same as these guys over here. So to the and conspiracy to theory guy— point. There's no difference. To support that point, Dr. Vinay Prasad uh, was complaining about how a lot of people who are reasonably, uh, rationally confident in vaccines in general uh, kept on uh, getting angry at people who were raising concerns about myocarditis with the coronavirus vaccines because they put it into a stark binary between anti-vax and pro-vax yep. without, uh, without tolerating the doctors who were saying, hey, this is more than just a random signal. Right. So, yeah, you can have those dynamics, and sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, and uh, that really makes complexity hard. Well, it does, and I'm going to make it even harder right now. I'm going to throw another layer on this layer cake by also, also throwing on top of it the threat assessment because this is powerful stuff, and our brains are very, very tuned as survival machines to threat assessment. Right? I've talked about this a lot. And it seems that there's there are interesting breakdowns in how threat assessment occurs with people. Um, you know, like for example, you get people who think that uh, COVID's a big hoax. There's nothing to be afraid of. You know, their their threat assessment is clearly a little. Their machinery is a little broken when you know all the statistics and facts of of the fact that this is a pretty dangerous disease. But that itself can also be a factor in whether somebody is getting vaccinated, whether somebody's going along with public safety guidelines, or whether somebody's going to believe in conspiracy theories or not. Is you know, is their threat assessment ability? And this you could you could call this a subset of critical thinking because um, it's pretty important to our survival that we be able to assess threats accurately, and to the degree that we can't we could end up dying. And, and you know, you got a lot of people who are dead these days because of COVID because the threat assessment sucked. So that's and another factor that goes on top of this too. And for people who are, are in, a, in a mental place where the threat assessment is very high, like on vaccines, you know, if you don't get vaccinated, you could be killing me, right? Like that's a, that's a high threat assessment. So I'm going to deem you the person who is unvaccinated. I'm vaccinated. You're not. You're a threat to me. I want you away from me. I want you physically away from me. I don't want you near me. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want anything to do with you. Like that's like the, it's, it's easy to see why 
that binary yes, no, black and white thinking enters into the picture when there's a high threat assessment is really where I'm going with all this, right? And one one thing I've noticed is that when studying a lot of sovereign citizen conspiracy theories, greed as an explanation goes everywhere. Mm. They they try to explain away basic elements of uh, the legal and police system with references to greed. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, pretty much all lawyers disagree with them? Well, that must be because lawyers benefit from the existing system. Right. That's right. Yeah, big time. And that goes along with my hypothesis as to what the primary cause of sovereign citizens is, which is economic desperation. They would, of course, accuse people who are, you know, the enemy of greed because they got all the money and I don't, you know, and I, here I am stuck within this in this horrible situation. So I, I'll, I'll use that to reinforce my hypothesis. But, but. <laughs> you see that elsewhere as a concept of encapsulated trust. Are, mm -hmm. Do people have mutual uh, interests in which you can rely on them to advance your own interests while they are advancing theirs? Yep. Yeah. And let's remember, a lawyer who isn't working for you rarely has the same interests as you. They might have similar interests, but unless you're paying them, that might not be true. Yeah, of course. Uh, so it's very easy to see people's self-interest. And then, because you don't have a sense of scale, assume that explains all, dis all disagreements. Exactly. Exactly. One of the, and the idea of self-interest covers up a lot of uh, gaps in a theory, but that also plays into certain kinds of propaganda techniques. So Ladislav Bietman, who used to work for Czechoslovak, uh, the Czechoslovak secret police, uh, defected to the West, and he wrote some books on propaganda, and he was a professor on disinformation. And one of the things she observed that some of the most effective propaganda techniques were simply creating a trail of breadcrumbs without uh, that they that would lead a person on to form the connections without forcing them down that path. Mm -hmm. And by imputing relevancy to the connections, yep. they could persuade people. And there, in that calculation of relevancy, a lot of the bad reasoning uh, was weaponized. Yes, yes. So, I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll give you the penultimate example of that. QAnon. God damn it. <sighs> The breadcrumbs, they were literally called breadcrumbs. The the Q drops, right? The things that they would do. And it was an it was a crowdsourced audience participation conspiracy theory. And that's why it was so powerful and it remains powerful almost a year after the last Q drop has happened. It's been almost a year now. And QAnon is still going strong. And Trump's movement is still going strong because of the crowdsourced participatory. I mean, I'd like part to distinguish that. between Trump supporters and QAnon. Well, there, there are there people are... who I know who 
support Trump, including one recent PhD grad, but that's because they think he was a more effective administrator than he was. Mm-hmm. QAnon, there's QAnon supporters are almost overwhelmingly pro-Trump, but there's still a difference. Uh, okay, I, I don't know that that's a super important distinction at this point, especially considering that the whole steal the steal election, uh, or you know, steal. Steal, stop the steal thing, is another whole conspiracy theory rampant throughout the entire GOP right now. They're, they're ve- think of Venn diagrams, right? Venn yeah, diagrams. I'm thinking about some pretty crossed over Venn diagrams here. QAnon is a subset of Trump supporters. I wasn't meaning to imply everybody who follows Trump is a, is a QAnon follower. And if that's what, how that came across, then I didn't mean that. So sorry about that. But the entire GOP right now is locked in a series of the most insanely stupid and democratically destructive conspiracy theories I've ever seen. The entire political party has been, a has been absconded with by conspiracy theorists. It's nuts. Been a, and thing is, conspiracy, conspiracy theories uh, always bubble up, and it's oftentimes a task of trusted politicians to, if not quash them, at least uh, ignore them. Yeah. Sadly, Trump was an idiot. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a pretty conservative guy, and I opposed Trump because he was an idiot. Mm -hmm. Um, But because he was an idiot, he seemed to believe a lot of uh, accusations of malign intent. Mm -hmm. And when one of the normal gatekeepers against such fears gives into it, you end up creating a change in leverage. There was already eroding trust in more established conservatives uh, during the Obama uh, campaign. Uh, And I still, I'm very bitter about the way some people were treated during the Obama campaigns. Okay. Uh, But the result was it completely created the sense that a lot of conservative politicians and thinkers were just spineless. And uh, rightly or wrongly, a lot of people concluded they'd rather uh, uh, someone who seemed to be crude but effective. Oh, yeah, I get, no, I get that. I totally get that. But that's a bit of a diversion. Well, uh, only to the degree that I want to comment on this only to the degree that the entire GOP has embraced you said you mentioned that it's the job of thought leaders, politicians, et cetera, to push back on or at least ignore this wild ass conspiracy theories. But the problem here and one of the reasons why this podcast is particularly relevant right now is because we have we have an entire political party that has embraced these conspiracy theories and, I, I, and is running I, I, I refuse to i refuse to comment on the party as a whole okay that well i'm not saying that means every single person believes it what i'm saying is that the leadership and the direction and the and the media 
representation of how the GOP is comporting itself these days is 100% the media. What's that? The, the media tends to select the most dramatic cases. Well, and, fair enough. I, uh, I'm, I'm just commenting on I what I see. Done a, I haven't done a deep dive, but there's certainly some pretty sane voices, and there's certainly some pretty crazy voices. Well, you and know, I, I, I interviewed... can't evaluate that right now. Okay, fair enough. Well, I interviewed Joe Walsh, you know, a couple months ago, and I follow him on Twitter, and he's a for you know, he's a never Trumpster. Uh, you know, GOP, old school, you know, Tea Party conservative. I mean, he's as conservative as they come. And he, you know, on a daily basis is talking about how the GOP as a party, you know, has been uh, overtaken by this. And he talks with and engages with GOPers on a daily basis about this. So, and you know, they're pervasive, mind you. But there is a difference between pervasive and totally in control. Okay, fair and enough. Well, I, I see very. I think is pretty important. I see very few GOP candidates or politicians opposing Trump in any way publicly, and I have seen GOP politicians, i.e., Liz Cheney. Um, you know, Joe Walsh is a former politician, now political pundit and commentator, whose show was taken away from him because he opposed Trump. And he's not even running for office, right? But there, that, there's a lot. There's a huge chunk of the electorate that has a much more favorable view of Trump yeah. than people engaged in administration. Yeah, and that's and the it, thing and is, that's, it's very hard to explain. Remember the time uh, we disagreed on whether the CDC should do a study on yeah. gun violence. Yeah. My my argument came from the specifics of government bureaucracy, and uh, allocation of missions. Trying to make that kind of argument to the general population is very, very hard. Yes, it is, especially it's now. It's very hard to explain to people how Trump's administration was chaotic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess for those of us who were following it, it's not hard to explain. I was, in, it was a horror shit show for every single day of the administration, as far as I could tell. I mean, there were, there were very few decisions that were made. That made any sense, but anyway, I I only wanted to 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 harp on that for a second because I my perception you know of of America right now and where it's going is very much in this conspiracy mindset. It's a it's a massive trust divide, and when you have a whole lot of resource, common intellectual sources that are connected to a suspect party, it is very easy to simply conclude they've all been uh, tainted and therefore ignore them. Well, I'm not and, trying to ignore them. I think what I'm trying no, no, to do I, is I fix see it. that pattern happening. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, there is a lot of pro-Trump people who ignore, uh, for example, discussing the January 6th incident. Mm -hmm. Uh, a publication, whom I don't like their editorial line, had actually obtained a copy of the uh, rally's uh, uh, permit request. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could go through it and see that being on the White House lawn was not part of it. Mm -hmm. They were trespassing. Mm -hmm. And linking it to someone, he said, well, it, it's a terrible publication. 
I agree it's a terrible publication, but you don't have to like the publication in order to read uh, uh, the document they got. Well, of course not. But that's the ad hominem knee-jerk reaction that humans naturally have, right? This yes, is but that's a very pervasive one in a world in which it is hard to determine what has been falsified or not. Well, that's exactly right. And that's where critical thinking comes in. But also, see, critical thinking is not the the foolproof truth-seeking methodology, you know, and I think that some people kind of have this weird idea that it is or that it's supposed to be or something, and it's not. You know, truth is a relative quantity. Truth has a lot to do with the viewpoint of the person from which it is, you know, being viewed. And uh, and that's that's a difficult thing for people to wrap their head around. And I mean, so... Um, I, I'd like to be clear that I think that there is the truth, then there are observers who try to determine truth, and their perceptions are going to differ wildly. My, my point, exactly. And the truth, by the way, is only, is, is only, you know, in terms of objective reality, there are things that we can all agree are factually true, or that we should be able to agree are factually true, like this is a deck of cards. It exists. I'm holding it in my hand. These are things that are factual statements. Um, is the information on these cards useful? Now, that True is not necessarily a piece of things. truth. Right? Um, it's useful so, to some people. It's not useful to other people. So the fact of its existence is something that we could say is objectively true. But the relative value of this, which is the kind of arguments about truth that we tend to have a lot more often, <laughs> that gets relative. And I'd like to point to the uh, federal rules of evidence uh, where you have to prove that something is relevant before you bring it into evidence. There you go. Right. And then you've got a whole bunch of steps which improve the probability of it being true. Right. But don't guarantee that it's true. That's right. And that's and that's the whole that's that that and therein lies the rub. Because that's what we try to use critical thinking to discern. But as we've shown in studies and in research on this, we're dealing with a whole bunch of people who are not very good critical thinkers. And even if they try to tell themselves they are, they're not. And, and this, is, this is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. You know, and you can call it an educational problem or a societal problem. I don't care what kind of problem you want to call it. It's a big problem. We got people who can't think their way through facts. And this is a voting population that makes important decisions. And, and this is, you know, this is where we come to the the solution phase of the of the podcast where we go, oh my God, what are we going to do about this? You know, uh, it's uh, a big some problem. Of it is just taking more effort. Uh, one thing uh, that I've seen is people rejecting anything from a broad category simply because something in it is tainted. Yes. Because it's unknowable which specific thing is tainted rather than make a probabilistic guess they make an absolute decision to ignore it. Yes. And actually, and let me throw something at you on that point that you just said, because I want to, I want to harp on this for a second. I want to, I want to explore this for a minute. 
I have said in the past on video um, in regards to David Icke or Alex Jones, I have made an argument that I would call the never cry wolf again argument, right? Which is I don't accept information from Alex Jones anymore. If somebody tries to tell me something that Alex Jones says, I do reject it out of hand. Which is a rough heuristic, and it is going to produce more benefit than not. Well, and let me. But it's not totally right. Well, okay, and let me and let me explain though why I've come to that place because it was a very well considered and and deeply thought decision. It wasn't a. Uh, ad hominem, Alex Jones sucks, and so screw Alex Jones. And, and I want to differentiate this because I believe that there is room in our world of critical thinking and how that discipline is applied for, you know, for, for this kind of, of reasoning, which is if a source of information like Alex Jones or David Icke are found on inspection, on deep dives, and I've done deep dives on Alex Jones's claims many times. If you find in the course of doing that over and over and over and over again, I would say as a rough heuristic or a rough number, you know, maybe seven or eight times, that the source of information that is that the, the, the source of the claim is just factually out to lunch just completely not has no basis in fact whatsoever you know uh, frogs are making people gay you know and this was something alex jones said i mean i mean come on he said it you know and i mean and, i know, remember well, there's a saying that there's a, uh, they're making the frogs gay which was about yeah chemical yes that's right uh, chemical that's changes right. changing the uh sexual behavior of frogs uh-huh. which was proven in a few small cases. Uh-huh. But he was exaggerating it and trying to infer that it would explain human behavior, which is not supported. Exactly. My point. You find that there might be some kernel of something at the bottom of that that might have some truth connected with it. But it's so hyperbolic. It's so exaggerated. It's such nonsense. And the conclusion is nowhere near anything like reality that after you observe that kind of behavior out of a news source or out of a source of information repeatedly, and then you start looking at, well, what else is this person doing? Oh, it seems that there's a repeating pattern of creating extreme emotional reactions in his audience so as to lower their ability to critically, rationally consider his ideas so that they will simply accept them out of fear, terror, concern, upset. These are... And, we these can, are, and given the pattern of it, we can reasonably infer that it is deliberate. Exactly. We can reasonably infer that it is deliberate. It is not an off-the-cuff reactionary shoot from the hip oh alex jones fuck that guy it is a study it took me years to come to this conclusion i considered more alex jones nonsense than i care to even think about because i was gonna do this right i was gonna take my time and i was gonna actually investigate this guy and figure out was there anything to what he had to say and there isn't
that, that you you are factually stupider after listening to that guy for any length of time. And he goes on for hours every day. He's got his hours long show and he just dishes out alarming news after hyperbolic nonsense, after lie, after lie, after lie. And I go, there's a point where you can simply realize that this source of information is completely illegitimate and should not be given any, even the time of day. That's L. Yes. Ron Hubbard. That's Jim Jones. That's Keith Raniere. And that's, da that's David Icke. And that's Alex Jones. These are people who you are actually better off never listening to. You'd actually be smarter for not paying attention to them. That I've proven that to myself. And I took myself very seriously in making that adjudication. So I want a different, I just wanted to take this time to point out that when you make a decision to ignore a source, it's not necessarily inherently wrong, but make your due diligence, do the job, apply your critical thinking correctly, and, and don't just eschew a source because it makes you uncomfortable or because it makes you feel bad or because it challenges you. Those are not valid reasons to ignore a source of information. But when you have proven over and over again that a source is just false, then you don't have to continue giving it any credibility. Um, yeah. And uh, there is, there's definitely a rational reason to disregard sources. Yeah. But, for example, tracing what I saw, you've heard the... Uh, European Jews are actually descendants of Khazars rather than from Middle Eastern Jews theory. Uh, it, it, that's not familiar to me, but I, I can okay, run with was, that. It sure. was floating around the uh, fringe uh, sure. communities a few years ago. And, and I'm sure it had some sort of bizarre conclusion as a result of that. Like, I don't like, remember if there like was the a specific shouldn't be in Israel or we should, we should nuke Israel as a result. A number of historians pointed out, no, this isn't very plausible, but because they came from mainstream institutions, they were assumed to be tainted by whatever self-interest uh, supported the general uh, apparatus of government. Right. Therefore, their criticisms, which delved into uh, specific arguments, were ignored uh, by a lot of people. Okay. In the French community, in the French community. Yeah. Uh, and they just made that blanket assumption that because the entire society is full of a lot of self-dealing idiots, therefore anything de from the mainstream is therefore uh, tainted as well. Yeah, and that's that's not good critical thinking, obviously. I, of course, have made that same <laughs> mistake many times. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's just I normal. Mean, you can provide examples of self-dealing and scumbag behavior from pretty much any institution because institutions are run by people. Yeah, well, exactly. But is that the same thing as the institution falsifying information because these individuals were found to be scumbags? Right. That's where you actually have to go in and do some thinking. That's right. Because you will find, and this is important in, in terms of critical thinking and news sources, and this goes completely in line with the conspiracy stuff because this is, this is considered 
you know, thoughtful uh, application of critical thinking to where you're getting your information from. And, and you do have to be careful and you do have to be alert because it can be a logical fallacy to write off a whole institution as wrong or false or bad. You can, that could be a fallacious argument. You could be wrong for doing that. You could also be right for doing that. So you really have to, it's not a black and white thing. And this is where the formulaic thinking, uh, you know, that, that formulas or that some kind of equation is going to lead you to the truth. This is where that falls apart. There, there is no formula that you can just put data into and it automatically, you know, prints out the right, the right answer or the right truth. That this is this is where this is what the critical thinking is all about is you have to engage with the information and with the sources of the information and you got to do your own thinking about it. There's no calculator or simple Simon approach to this. You know, sometimes this will be the right thing to do and sometimes this will be the wrong thing to do. And context is everything when it comes to that. And this is this is why I can say yeah, I'm not ever going to accept anything from Alex Jones again and feel that I'm on solid ground as a critical thinker in saying that. And at the same time, acknowledge, hey, I've made generalized statements about mainstream media that I really shouldn't have made. I mean, it really wasn't a, a good critically thinking statement to say, you know, mainstream media is not interested in the truth. That's and, a, you know, that's not a good that's not a good statement to make. I mean, it's overgeneralizing. <laughs> it's um, a little bit. I yeah. think <laughs> you, you do see a whole lot of lack of concern for the truth from oh, yes, media. you do. Yes, you do. But that's yes. a it's still a huge broad category, and some of them are more truthful than others. That's right. That's exactly right. So. So, you know, so again, it's just a matter of you got to, there's no substitute for good critical thinking. There's no substitute for applying yourself wholly to the problem in front of you and, and parsing it out and figuring it out and dealing with it. And if you're, you know, an, another rule of thumb with this, of course, is, is if, if the information or the belief you have has to be true in order for you to feel a certain way, you have got to suspect yourself there of some bias. You've got to be wary of yourself. You've got to police yourself with that. If you have an emotional need for something to be true or conversely for it to be false, and that emotional need is what's driving you, then you're going to commit logical fallacies that almost, almost 100% of the time. You know. and I think one thing to bear in mind is that a lot of people can... Uh, extrapolate from small dat data set. Mm -hmm. And because they can trace their line of thinking, uh, they're confident in the conclusion. Mm -hmm. And because they can't trace a line of thinking from the critics, they may uh, disregard the criticisms uh, of that extrapolation. Totally. And totally. easily forget that extrapolations have their own risks. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's where that discipline factor comes in because you, 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 there's nobody who's going to do it for you. If if you want to examine, if if you if you hold a position, well, this is actually goes back to um, 
John Stuart Mill. I mean, on liberty, right? He talks about this. He says, "Look, if you can't make your 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 the the enemy's position better than they can, if you if you can't enunciate, if you can't state their argument as well as or better than they can, then you really don't get where they're coming from, and you don't necessarily know whether they're right or wrong if you can't do that." And and factually, he's right. You know, and taking the example of two doctors in California mm -hmm. uh, who ran an urgent care clinic, mm -hmm. they took the uh, COVID uh, test statistics from their clinics mm -hmm. and tried to extrapolate that to California and the country as a whole. Correct. This was a bad idea. Yep. <laughs> but because they because raised their math, uh, a lot of people were convinced by it. That's right. But just because you can come up with a number does not mean that number is true or relevant. That's right. That's right. And that's and that's why when we look at these studies or look at anybody's claims, you can look at the claim, but you really do have to drill down to the details if you're going to be critical about it to see how did they come up with that? How did they figure that out? And any good paper in the literature will lay out exactly how they did it. And if you're being presented with information that doesn't show you that or doesn't isn't transparent about how they came up with their information, then you have to suspect the validity of that information until you can verify it. That's just good critical thinking. And here's the thing. I ran into people commenting on it to conclude that because their conclusions disagreed with the general tone of the mainstream media, therefore it must be true because, hey, uh, you have to dig deep for the truth. That's right. That's right. Another logical fallacy. Exactly. And I think that really drives a lot of the kind of paranoid pushback by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Because if you know there is a flaw in one system or institution, it's too easy to just reject everything they say mm -hmm. and still consider yourself to be a good thinker because you push back on that. Well, it's somehow, <laughs> it's somehow, in, it's somehow wrapped up in, I think, um, what, what comes to mind for me with that is, is a status thing or a social currency thing, again, of... You know, I'm standing up against the big guys. I'm the David and they're the Goliath. And don't I have more value because I'm the David with my little slingshot, right? And of course, because everything's interconnected, you can turn any interaction into a David and Goliath exactly. situation. That's right. And people do seven days a week. That's right. Yeah. So I, you know, so this isn't, this isn't super complicated and super hard to understand. It's just people being people. But, you know, when you break it down this way, you find things that maybe we can approach or attack or fix or some, or address in some fashion with people and try to, you know, again, bring the levels down and get people to talk with one another and, and, and sort this stuff out. You, you wouldn't think it should be so hard, but it really is. It really is hard at this point. Well, I you think know? part of it is that once people have convinced themselves that they're uh, engaged, they've done their critical thinking, then they become pretty certain and therefore react defensively towards anyone who disagrees. 
That's and and that's I'm going to react pretty negatively to someone who tells me the Earth is flat. Well, exactly. Uh, exactly. But there is one final point here which we can make, which um, which seems to be missing in the good critical thinking world of the conspiracies, of the conspiracy theorists. Um, and that is the honest humility that comes with the discipline of good critical thinking. You know, I've made up my mind about Alex Jones, but even there, in the back of my mind, I've always got this little crack in the door that I've closed that maybe the guy could say something true and maybe there is something legit he could report on and maybe possibly he could be taken seriously about something. And I always have that sitting in the back of my mind. And I don't know that there's any subject or any area or any person that I've ever totally closed off because truth can come from anywhere, anytime, from anybody. And we always need to be open to the ideas that one, things we've rejected could we can reconsider, and two, we can be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong about this. <laughs> and that is really important. That is super important. It's one of the most important parts of this whole thing is that discipline of being able to say, I was wrong or I don't know, I could be wrong, you know? And that is important, but there's a, there's a follow-up to it. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen people who are proven wrong on one of their foundational claims, but who still clung to uh, uh, a conclusion based off of it. Mm. even though uh, the premise was disproven. Mm -hmm. so for example, uh, a person has to be bodily. Well, well, no, and a person tried to make a claim about medieval law. I disproved the medieval law claim, but the person still clung to their interpretation of the phrase, even though his source was disproven. It's sometimes hard to revise one's conclusions based on a change in premise, maybe because a person has forgotten the connection between them. Yeah, I mean, I guess there could be a lot of reasons for that, actually. I mean, I guess you'd have to parse it out with the person as to why it is they're holding on to the conclusion, even if one of the foundational reasons for that conclusion is is just been taken away from them. I'm guessing uh, I'm not that person. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you'd have to you'd have to interrogate them and find out what's up with that, because they might have other reasons that they've come up with, or you know that wasn't the crucial argument that everything hinged on, or probably more likely there's some other emotional investment going on there that they're not willing to give up on yet. They haven't given up on that. There's still some other reason that they have to have that be true. You know, probable. Yeah. And you got to find out what that is in order to take it apart. But um, but it's but it just proves, again, that it's very it's very rare, I think, that we believe something for one reason. I think, that, you know, I think I think when it comes to that, there's all kinds of things going on with people. And that's why it's, yes. that's why it can and be so hard to deconstruct. And you know? sometimes I think that a lot of the time. uh those little 
bits of fake critical reasoning uh, or bad statistics often becomes a fig leaf to just stop thinking, to say, I've done my due diligence, and I don't need to look into this anymore. Yeah. And that's a very easy instinct. Yep. And it is a very pervasive one, and it's been around a long time, and it's it's caused a lot of problems. Yeah. Well, it's the, I mean, and, and you see why it would be the way that a person would think, because otherwise you'd be constantly second guessing yourself, constantly wondering as to whether what you believe is true or not. I mean, we have to all come to a point where we sort of accept something as true. The point is, I think, to always be willing to go back and question yourself. Yes. Always um, be open to the fact or the idea that you might be wrong or that you weren't wrong, but it's just new information came along to change that position. And, and that's okay one, too. And one area of research in neurology has to do with confidence intervals that uh, there seems to be a certain biology to uh, how much of a logical gap people are willing to tolerate. Yeah. And that might relate to anxiety and dopamine. For example, law students are two standard deviations more anxious than the general population. <laughs> well, isn't They're, that interesting? That's not a surprise. Having been in law not school, at all. that's not a surprise. <laughs> nope. And it's not all because of the classes. Nope. My time in law school was about as easy going as high school. Got it. Got it on that. All right. So. Uh, but then you end up with, okay, you've got a confidence interval. Maybe people with bigger confidence intervals have more emotional energy to advance things, but they have less ability to reflect. Maybe. Something to be studied. Something more to be looked into. I mean, there's, it's, oh, God, it just blows me away how much there is still left to study. And oh, God, into. yes. So much. I mean, we're at so the much. beginning stages of really understanding the neurology of thinking. Yeah. Because uh, we used to have this difficulty of measuring people's living brains. Something yeah. about the whole, <laughs> we don't like cutting up a living person to see how their brain works. That's right. Uh, but, now we've got MRI machines and a lot more tools, and we're finding a lot of things. But even at the same time, remember the dead fish study. A bunch of scientists stuck a dead fish inside an MRI machine and asked it a question about human interaction, and they measured a change. Ha. So even with a lot of studies, you have to distinguish between the random noise and the actual results. That's right. That's right. This is, I really just can't say enough about where a good education comes into this, you know, because I'll, 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 I think we should probably move toward wrapping up at this point. And I think I want to wrap up on this point here, which is research quality of people who, you know, this is a meme. This is floating around out there and I've, I've retweeted it and it's, and it's a good thing to think about. And that is people out there love talking about how they quote unquote did their research. 
And I have come to learn uh, the hard way, as many, many thousands and thousands of other people have who have experienced life in post-grad <laughs> school, uh, that when you have to actually sit down and do what's considered academic research, literature review, reading peer-reviewed studies, diving into the statistics, actually reading the methodology section of these papers, you know, not just the introduction and the abstract, knowing what an abstract is in the first place, knowing what a literature review is in the first place, right? Knowing how statistics are actually used. This is stuff you have to learn and you got to go way out of your way to learn it. And it is hard. And I have really been doing my nut this year, figuring this stuff out. And so when people tell me, They've done their research, and I, I go, great, you show me your literature review, and I'll believe you. And up until then, I don't want to hear it. You know what I mean? And to me, it, it's funny <laughs> when a lot of people say, you have to dig deep to find uh, the truth. They don't mean dig deep through mountains of uh, densely written academic work by right. people who have spent decades studying this. That's right. They mean find some random YouTube video with a few hundred video views rather than uh, 300 pages of explanatory material. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I had to go deep on the YouTube algorithm to get this one. You know, I had to be on YouTube for three months before it served me this video. Like, <laughs> you're just like, wow, man, you really got to figure out what the word research means. Because or rather, they don't know what deep and effort means. I think a lot of what's going on is people, because they're momentarily surprised, they adjust their expectations so drastically uh, that they can't actually anticipate what the larger trends are. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. And what my thought is... When you you know a lot of conspiracy theories are based on the argument from uh, unbelievability that I can't believe it happened, therefore it probably didn't happen, like the moon landing. Oh sure. But the thing is, that's very vulnerable to availability by to availability biases. And when you get into that, and you don't understand the sheer complexity of things and how oftentimes it's well beyond what is easily followable by a person. It's and people have the instinct of disbelieving anything they can't immediately verify. Mm -hmm. They're going to conclude a lot of things are fake. Mm -hmm. And that I only believe what's in front of my own two eyes may be rational in a few short situations. But trying to apply that to all of life, and that becomes a paranoid endeavor. Yeah, I'd say so. And I'd say that maybe there might be some other factor we're studying there in terms of people's ability to even accept information that goes beyond the bounds of their comfort level, we could say. You know, and what determines that? I mean, there's, that's, that itself could be a study. You know, that some people simply will not move in or out of a, of a field or accept pieces of information simply because they just can't go there, you know, for whatever reason. And, and what's that all about? 
So we, we, we've, we've, you know, it, we're not all, it's, it, it's quite a subject. It's quite a subject. And as a warning, I'd like to point out that it is very easy to construct a conspiracy theory. Yeah. My own joke conspiracy theory is that the Welsh are secretly trying to rule the world. Because after all, let's remember that uh, uh, you had a bunch of Welsh extremists settle in uh, Argentina. And there was a Welshman with the Argentine invasion forces in the Falkland Islands. The Bishop of Canterbury was seen at a Druid ceremony, and he's uh, a very influential person in the British government. Wow. You can come up with all sorts of conspiracy theories. Uh, and there's an armed group called the Welsh Guards, who are actually part of the British military. But by stringing all these disparate things together, you can create a sense of relevance when there isn't. And right. it's very easy to create a conspiracy theory, and if you don't have examples of where this is silly, it's very easy to take these tests as true. Exactly. Well, there you go, folks. Some commentary and thoughts this week about conspiracy theorists, critical thinking, and the problems uh, between these things. <laughs> I hope that our maunderings here were of some interest to you and were of somewhat uh, informative in some fashion and perhaps mildly entertaining. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to us uh, go on about this. I really do hope that this show was helpful in some fashion and at least breaking down and understanding what this is all about. And maybe through that understanding, we can come up with or implement solutions to bring the levels down and get people talking again, and at least not get so be so divided, uh, because I think that's really going to be the death of us if we don't deal with that. So, all right, folks, thanks for coming around. I will see you next week. Cyprian, again, thank you for your participation this week. And remember, think for yourself is not the same thing as think by yourself. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Excellent. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.